So tonight we're continuing on with uh, looking at the journey of awakening in the framework of what conditions need to be present in the mind in order for awakening to occur. What conditions can support this depth of understanding that can uproot these forces of greed, hatred, and delusion that keep us living in ignorance, um, keep us caught in delusion where we're not seeing clearly. And so this being the seven factors of enlightenment. We've already talked about mindfulness, which is the uh, ability to see things just as they are without adding anything to or changing anything in that experience. And then investigation, this illuminating quality in the mind that helps us to be able to uh, discern the specific, (coughs) excuse me, the specific uh, characteristics of each experience and also the universal characteristics. Investigation is the first of the arousing qualities. And tonight we'll be moving on to energy or effort, which is the second. And just to say that these seven factors are laid out in a a specific order. That, you know, first we become mindful of experience, and then this quality of investigation where we're probing into that experience. really illuminating that experience. So investigation comes forth, and then this will give rise to effort or energy, which will in turn uh, bring a joyful interest in our experience. So we need this quality of effort or energy to have the capacity to bring our attention over and over again to experience. And this energy needs to have a courageous quality to it. Or when we hit difficult terrain, when we hit unpleasant experience, we will simply become overwhelmed by it. We won't be able to keep going. Energy or Effort is, you know, probably uh, the most humbling of the seven factors of enlightenment. Um, in our practice, we work a lot with this factor and may find it very elusive, difficult to work with, difficult to find right effort, the right amount of effort that we need in order just to meet our experience. And it's really essential. We need effort or energy to overcome laziness or sloth and torpor. We need effort or energy to be able to practice restraint 
uh, to be able to guard the sense doors. Um, We need effort or energy just to overcome a great inertia that often is present in our lives, or an apathy, or a complacency. It's an effort or energy that is required to stir us up into wakefulness. And in order to awaken, we cannot be complacent. We will need to be able to rely on this effort or energy. So it's very helpful to come to understand it, you know, to have some intellectual understanding of it, and then to know tools that we can call upon that will help us when we become daunted by our laziness, apathy, sloth and torpor. Or at times with effort we find that we become over-efforting and we might get tight and contracted. And so learning different ways that we can work with this. And of course, energy or effort is not just limited to practice. In our lives we really rely a lot on this factor. We need it in order to uh, have the energy to take care of ourselves. We need it in order to work. Um, We find that in our lives when we don't have a lot of energy, life can become very difficult, very trying. You know, it's not that everybody living in poverty is there because of lack of energy or effort. But if we don't have that just essential energy to take care of ourselves, we may find the basics of life hard to come by. Or we find it difficult to be a human being when we don't have the effort or energy to tend to difficult mind states that arise and can find ourselves living in a state of depression. But the effort or energy that we talk about in relation to the seven factors of awakening is a very specific type of energy. It's an energy that is accompanied by wisdom and directed towards awakening. It's a very wholesome use of energy, a vital life force that is imbued with courage, that has wisdom to help guide it, and is directed in a very specific direction, that of awakening. And it also does this, has this, uh, all of these qualities, moment after moment after moment. Often with energy, we work with it as, um, in a way of thinking, of it on a consumption basis, having the idea that we need to conserve energy to make it through the day, as if there's a limited quantity of it, much as we find in the oil fields of the world. 
And in the teachings, there's some descriptions of these tendencies or different ways that we might experience this way of thinking of it from this consumption basis that I find both humorous and somewhat recognizable in my own experience. So just to share a little bit this you, with you. Um, one has some work to do, and one thinks, here is the work I have to do. In doing it, I will tire myself. Therefore, I shall lie down. <laughs> By so doing, one fails to stir up any energy for the attainment of the unattained. Or, one has finished some work, and now it occurs to them that they are tired by doing that work, and therefore, one should lie down. And, in doing so, one fails to stir up any energy for the attainment of the unattained. Or, one has to go on a journey, and in thinking of the journey, one simply becomes tired and lies down. Or, one has gone on the journey and is tired, so lies down. Uh, one collects one's meal and, seeing it is insufficient, worries then about becoming tired and takes rest. Or one eats sufficient food and thinks that their body is heavy and unpliable and therefore lies down. After an illness, one thinks the body has not recovered and it is weak and unpliable and therefore lies down. I found this very easy to relate to. Uh, And I had, you know, a really good lesson in this, in my own experience, in seeing how much the thoughts about my experience, about energy, color my experience. And so, in looking at it, um, the, the place that I, I became very acutely aware of it was when I had chronic fatigue syndrome and found myself without energy a lot of the time. And I really saw how there could be an experience happening in any moment and you know, just the idea that that might continue would make me tired and needing to take rest. And I also discovered that many times if um, I would think that I really needed to take rest, but if I sat instead, I would become more rested than if I had slept. And so we really need to be careful about how we hold these views, how we start to solidify our experience in a way, in this moment, that exhausts us that tires us, that keeps us from calling forth the effort or energy that we need to wake up. The commentaries also talk about ways that we can look at these same tasks and instead of arousing indolence, they arouse an earnestness, such as I have some work to do, and if I intend to that, it will not be easy for me to, um, to fully apply myself on the teachings, and therefore I should not lose any time. You know, that we apply oneself diligently when we have the opportunity. 
or after finishing one's job, that one recognizes that during that time of work that they weren't fully practicing and therefore can now use this time in the present moment towards the highest attainment. So instead, you know, these very same situations, instead of going towards this indolence, this laziness, we can call upon spiritual urgency. That time is not unlimited. That we have the space right now in our lives to practice wholeheartedly. For many of us, the word itself, effort or energy, can uh, bring up images, associations in the mind that are not so helpful to us. You know, we often think of effort or energy of being that striving, forceful, uh, very purposeful energy that, you know, at times can be a very strong energy, but at times that idea can really bring about tightness, can bring about constriction, can make things very difficult. Um, You know, we might think of really pushing through something as being when there's a lot of effort or energy. And, you know, this also comes about because when the Buddha spoke about effort or energy, he often used the image of the warrior. And the warrior was, you know, quite a, uh, uh, a what's it called? The um, word slipping my mind. A, s- a symbolic reference for that time in the culture where there w- it wasn't living in a time where there were warriors, and you know it was something people could relate to and could relate to the strength that a warrior needs in going into battle and yet somehow in the culture that we live in now where it can also be ta- we get very tight around um, image of needing to do good the image of self-worth gets tied in with that and when that happens this image doesn't work so well for us and can lead to a lot of harsh self-judgment where we can be really hard on ourselves. And so, you know, we in our own hearts and minds need to find images that work for us, that represent right effort, that represent the courageous or heroic effort that will help us to meet experience in a gentle and kind way, that will, you know, not falter in the doing so, but that it isn't an image that leads to this restriction of heart and mind. Sometimes it might be an image of a gentle warrior, a compassionate warrior. And it's something where it might be quite personal to each of us. 
to know that we need to um, find what helps us, what works for us. Something that can be helpful is when we're calling forth strong effort in our practice to notice whether this becomes self-referencing, where there's some identity that is created around this. Or to notice mind states that accompany it. You know, are we putting forth this really strong effort? Because we do have an impoverished sense of ourselves, that we feel like we're not really very good at this, so we should try harder, and we just, you know, really start practicing in a frenzied way. Are we just trying to prove ourselves through the effort that we call forth? this too can be very troublesome, can start wearing us out. So what was the Buddha pointing towards when he spoke about right effort? And what are the ways that we can learn to recognize and work with this factor in the mind? He spoke quite specifically about right effort as being the wholesome energy directed towards liberation. And this energy needed to be guided by right view and right intention. Right view helps us to have a sense of direction that is in accordance with the way things are that's pointing us in the right direction. You know, if we have a wrong view, if, uh, if there's something that's coloring our vision that is thwarted, then no matter how diligent we are, it's still going to perpetuate suffering. What we find supports right view is the understanding of the law of karma on the mundane level and the understanding of the Four Noble Truths as liberating insight. If we understand that actions have consequences, what we do, what we say has an effect, Um, if we understand Doing wholesome things will lead to wholesome results. Doing unwholesome things will lead to unwholesome results. This will help to guide our right view. And if we practice and really come to understand the depths of suffering, this will bring about a right view that is liberating, that is clarifying. And this is the wisdom factor that guides us in the application of energy. So we have right view as a part of the wisdom factor, and there's also right intention. And with this factor, we learn to redirect our thoughts in a way that is positive or helpful. 
And Buddha explained right intention as being thoughts of renunciation, generosity, and non-harming. And what this is, is using our total energy to help alleviate suffering, to not cause more harm. So we guide our right effort with these factors of um, right view and right intention. This is a, a support to how to skillfully use effort or energy. And then the Buddha talked about there being four great endeavors to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. And this is where we guard the mind. We prevent the arising of unarisen, wholesome states. I'll come back to this in just a moment. The second is to abandon unwholesome states that have already arisen. And so we work with abandoning that which is unwholesome. The third great effort is to arouse wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. And this works with cultivating these wholesome states. And the last great effort is to maintain and perfect wholesome states already arisen. And this is where we work with maintaining that which is wholesome. So the first, to prevent the arising of unarisen, unwholesome states. We do this in our practice uh, temporarily when we get very strong concentration, when we go into deep levels of absorption. And this is where we find the uh, hindrances have temporarily been abandoned. Or we do this in Vipassana meditation when we work with bringing mindfulness to all of the sense doors. And in doing so, we're working with preventing the arising of unwholesome mental states. In doing so, the hindrances are kept in check, the sense doors restrained, and mindfulness here again is acting as a protector. We can also do this, um, prevent the arising of these unwholesome mind states in our lives when uh, we set up nourishing conditions in our lives. This can be where we have wise friendships, where we are around people who inspire us and therefore keep us on our forward edge so that we're not lapsing into the unwholesome mind states. We can do this in our lives when we simplify our lives and not constantly putting ourselves in the place of temptation. We learn to recognize our tendencies in the mind and work skillfully with them. So we give support to ourselves by not putting ourselves in the midst of uh, situations where we know it will be very difficult for ourselves. 
you know, and that can be on retreat, something as simple as if we've been finding we're in a, a, a place where we're really distracted, where we find ourselves very interested in other people, that when we do walking meditation, that then it might be more helpful to walk in a place that's uh, more, offers more solitude. Or if we're sitting, you know, rather than sitting with eyes open, it would be a time to sit with eyes closed. Or if, you know, at a particular time of the day, we work a lot with sloth and torpor, a lot of sleepiness, it might be helpful at that time not to sit right beside our bed. We just learn to give ourselves support so that we don't have to uh, venture into these unwholesome mind states. The second great effort to abandon those unwholesome states that have already arisen. And so, you know, despite our best efforts, we find at times that these unwholesome mind states arise. And at these times, it's to work with abandoning them. And, you know, and mindfulness often will help us to abandon them. In seeing that which is unwholesome, we just simply don't feed it. We abandon it. Sometimes they're stickier, and that doesn't work. And then, if they persist, we can bring in this quality of investigation, becoming, uh, you know, very interested in this experience, really looking to the qualities of this experience, so that we can come to know it in its true nature. And in the seeing it in its true nature, you know, there's no identification with. We're not caught in the experience. And there's a letting go that happens very naturally. If this doesn't work, we can replace an unwholesome thought with an, uh, a wholesome thought. An example of this is uh, when we're taught in or caught in attachment to reflect on impermanence, to reflect on how fleeting this experience is. Or if we're caught in anger, we can replace an angry thought with a thought of loving kindness. The Buddha likened this as uh, to a carpenter who might knock out or remove or extract a coarse peg by means of a fine one. So we're using a much finer peg to dislodge something that is coarse and harsh and causing suffering. Another helpful way to abandon something that is causing pain is to reflect on the faults of the disturbing thoughts. And when we're caught in anger, reflecting on how this causes pain, this causes suffering, how this is, you know, the seed of violence, how this thought left unchecked could cause wars. 
there's a quite a powerful image that the Buddha used. Um, he likened to this as a person who is fond of ornaments would be horrified, humiliated, and disgusted if the carcass of a snake or a dog or a human being were hung around their necks. And, you know, this is very much like what's happening when we let these thoughts of anger, ill will, aversion hang around our necks. And, you know, if we really see that, if we really contemplate that, there again will be a abandoning that happens. And the Buddha also talked about, as a last resort, that of suppression. And I know that this can um, be difficult for us to relate to because we often have habits of repression and we don't want to push things down in a way that is just simply not dealing with. And yet, there's a different way to frame this where, you know, if we're really caught in something and we don't in that moment have the tools to work with it, it can be very skillful to turn the attention somewhere else and having to do it with quite a dynamic energy because you know at that point we're really dealing with something that's very strong but really needing to do that with a wholesome motivation you know to really allow ourselves a bigger picture that right now we don't have the the tools to work with that, so we need to turn the attention where the mind can come back into balance to be able to work skillfully with our experience. Uh, And, you know, I found one way of relating to this being... um, and not that I personally know this, but... uh, I know it to the depths that some people do, but the energy that is needed to overcome addiction. You know, that sometimes there just needs to be such a resoluteness with the overcoming of addiction and really needing to be quite dramatic in how we overcome And the Buddha, you know, he really talked about not being timid in, in the face of these difficulties, of these difficult energies or mind states that arise, um, these unwholesome qualities in the mind, and, you know, at times needing quite strong measures. And so the, fir- uh, the third of these great efforts is to arouse the unarisen wholesome states. And so, you know, it's that there's a lot of wholesome energy in our minds waiting to be tapped into. And sometimes just to remember that that's there. One of the ways we can come in contact with that is, you know, to reflect on times in our life when we have been virtuous when we have practiced sila, when we have been able to live in a skillful way, to know that there's been moments of wisdom in our lives. This can help to call up these forces, um, these wholesome mind states. 
And we also do this through diligently practicing the four foundations of mindfulness through or through working with the cultivating of the seven factors of enlightenment. These are ways that will help to strengthen these factors of mind and call them forth. And then the fourth great effort to maintain the already arisen wholesome mental states. And this is described as to keep firmly in the mind a favorable object of concentration that has arisen. To keep firmly in the mind a favorable object of concentration that has arisen. When the factors are strong, are firm, established, to stay really diligent then. You know, it's not a time to become lazy, complacent. Um, That to really keep them firmly in the mind. And by doing so, the mind gains stability until there is liberating realization. To me, these are some quite practical ways that we can work with right effort. Um, Because, you know, I know that when we equate this effort or energy with a superhuman quality, that we will often feel like we fall short. And I remember one time in my own practice sitting in Burma and I was trying to uh, do, make this superhuman effort and what it was accelerating was really (laughs) bodily decay, (laughs) declining, or it was really inviting unwholesome mind states because I I didn't have the capacity to really have that great gusto that I thought I should have and was getting quite exhausted and very hard on myself. And then one time sitting in a Dharma talk when uh, Sayadaw Ujjanaka was giving a talk and he was talking about effort or energy. And he was talking about how sometimes we have strong energy and other times we feel more depleted. And then he said, why? Why is this so? And his response was, because we are human. And, you know, sometimes we can forget this. And we think that we must be able to make this superhuman effort or energy. But when, you know, I heard it in the context, because we are human, it helped me to uh, be more at ease when effort or energy didn't manifest in that way. Often when... um, we get caught up in shoulds of practice will be another way that we work with effort or energy in a way that is quite wearing to us. Um, You know, when pain arises and we think that we should be able to have effort energy to sit through it. Um, When aversion arises and, you know, we get very contracted with our experience and we think that we still have to keep pushing with it. Uh, But this is where 
we really need rather to learn to be responsive to conditions. That uh, we need to learn what is the effort or energy that can simply help us to meet lack of energy. What can help us to be present with this? And, you know, sometimes it's been more with experience from the place of the receptive ingredient and really just allowing ourselves to receive experience. This can be very restorative to energy. I think it's helpful to look at ways that we can naturally get in touch with the strengthening of effort or energy. And one of the ways that we find it getting strengthened is when we have the arising of faith. When faith becomes strong for us, um, this will naturally call forth effort or energy. And so this is really uh, happens when um, something in our own experience becomes verified faith, something we come to see something for ourselves, to understand something in a new way. And this will bring forth this quality of effort or energy. And it's generated from within. It's not imposing something on our experience. It really uh, comes from an internal process that strengthens this factor of energy. There's really no magic formula for effort or energy. Conditions are always changing in our experience. And so we need to have that responsiveness in the mind. A really uh, helpful way is to remember back to when you first learned to do anything that required balance. Now maybe it was when you first got on a bicycle and how you had to work to find effort or energy that would help you to stay upright on the bicycle and moving forward. And so, you know, at first it may be that uh, you got on it and you floundered a bit and it was difficult but then you became a little bit more refined in how you applied your effort. And then you stayed a little bit more in balance. And then, um, actually I've noticed when I've learned 
a few sports that there could be, you know, almost a beginner, beginner's luck in the beginning. Uh, I remember this when I was kayaking. And I first got in a kayak and, you know, didn't know so much what to do, but there was kind of a natural responsiveness that came. But then people started teaching me about techniques. And so when I would try to apply some of these techniques, there could be an over-efforting that happened in there. And then, you know, so there would be over-correcting or a tightness that came into uh, the experience. In, you know, if it was riding a bike, you know, you're overcompensating, you become tight. And then you have to learn how to relax and just to be able to respond in the moment to conditions. So we can see right effort as how we can bring mindfulness to meet each moment of experience. And you know, sometimes this, with this, we'll have to call upon our deepest faith and inspiration to move us out of complacency. And we might find that in the very next moment, we are so energized that we only need a light touch. In working with effort or energy, it's helpful to remember that there's different stages to it. Because, you know, it can be that when we first sit down and uh, we need a certain type of energy then. You know, we're really kind of applying. It's an initial effort or energy. And it can need to be quite strong when we first begin. But if, you know, there'll come a point when conditions will change. Um, and actually what happens when you know, we first come to a retreat, initial energy to, to get started, and then um, that just gets us going. And then it can happen that all kinds of obstacles come up. And then we need you know, the courageous element of effort or energy. Um, we need to stand really steady at that time to meet these opposing forces. And we need to have a lot of faith and trust. And then... Um, out of that, we might find that the energy becomes uh, more refined, the mind becomes bright and clear, and then we might hit effortless effort. And then we still need to have a persistence. We still need to have a steadiness so that it doesn't become too lax, that we don't slip out into spaced outness. Um, but, you know, it's very much like a bird flying. You know, initially at takeoff, it needs a certain kind of energy. And then getting up into the wind, it needs a different kind of energy. And then a moment when it's cruising at a tight, high altitude and just resting upon that wind. But that wind can change at any time. So needing to be present for that. There's said to be 11 ways that we can bring about more energy. One is reflecting on states of misery and 
you know, what it's like when as human beings we are savaged by our own minds and how this can be overwhelming. We can be lost in confusion. And this, if we reflect upon these states of misery, can bring about a sense of spiritual urgency. Another uh, means about bringing about energy is to become aware of the benefits and the advantages of energy. Noticing, remembering what it's like in life when we do have energy, vitality, when, you know, remembering the times when we have experienced these seven factors in balance. We can also reflect on uh, how all of those who walked this path before us have really worked with this quality of energy and directing this quality towards realization. You know, and sometimes for me, in this way, it's really imagining myself amongst all those beings that have walked before me and sitting in their presence and touching into the energy that they had in order to awaken and recognizing that they too were human beings. And if they could do it, it must therefore be possible for me. We can also bring about energy through remembering the support and generosity of others that has made it possible for us to have this opportunity to practice. Wanting to be a worthy recipient of all of this generosity. We can reflect on the greatness of the Buddha himself and all of the qualities that are present for any Buddha, for any awakened being. And that, you know, the practice that we're doing is really a spiritual heritage of very beautiful, wholesome qualities of the mind. And in doing this, we are calling these qualities into actualization. Reflecting on this rare and precious opportunity that we have as a human being, where we live um, in a form of life that can awaken, that has the capacity to awaken. We can reflect on the achievements, our realization of others. You know, we may have read books or heard stories of people who lived in the time of the Buddha, such as Sariputta, Magalana, Ananda. Uh, some of those beings are very inspiring beings. Or it may be, you know, that people that have lived in our lifetime, people such as Deepama, or, you know, I read a book about Tenzin Palmo, uh, a Western nun who, you know, did very diligent practice. Um, just people that 
have really applied themselves to awakening in their lives, that can also give us inspiration to call forth this effort or energy. Can also be to have uh, complete avoidance of association with the lazy and the indolent. You know, we are so susceptible to the influence of others. And so just to be finding those who inspire us to hang out with, uh, those who, um, and you know, here we sit in this hall, and many times it will be our fellow yogis that inspire us. We experience their diligence, their um, dedication, and this will help us to call forth this effort or energy. We can have strong resolve in relationship to effort or energy. And you know, we can keep calling forth a resolve to have the energy to meet our experience, to simply do the best that we can. So, energy, effort, the second of the arousing factors, a vital force, unnecessary. I mean, it's easy to see how necessary this factor is in moving out of complacency, in kind of arousing all of the other factors. Remembering that it's not a fixed commodity, but it's really just what's needed in order to meet our experience in any given moment. It has this courageous element with it that will help us to meet unpleasant experience, pleasant experience, neutral experience. It will help us to have a wakeful attention in all of life's experiences. And it is undaunted. Courage. Heroic quality to it. It's a factor that we can all cultivate that we can all help to be present in our own experience. Through paying careful attention to our experience. Seeing how when we're not mindful leads us into um, difficult, unwholesome mind states, states of misery, where it's difficult to make effort or energy but about how when we pay close attention, wise attention to our experience, this will naturally bring forth more energy. A very dynamic factor in the mind. 
So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings cultivate this quality of effort or energy and may it become steadfast until awakening. of sharing and aspiration. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.